Welcome to the Foresight Health Roundup podcast, Foresight Health's podcast series for healthcare revolutionaries. Outcomes matter, customers count, and value rules. Hello again, everyone. This is Dave Burdick, news editor at Foresight Health. It is Thursday, April 27th. And as far as I know, Tucker Carlson is still out at the Fox Propaganda Network. That's good. That's very good. What I'm less sure about is private equity investment in the healthcare industry. And that's what we're going to talk about on today's show. Specifically, we're going to talk about a new report on PE investment in healthcare globally and a proposed policy framework for overseeing PE investment in healthcare in the U.S. to tell us how these developments intersect and what they mean here and abroad for healthcare consumers are Dave Johnson, founder and CEO of Foresight Health, and Julie Merchantson, partner at Transformation Capital. Hi, Dave. Hi, Julie. How are you guys doing this morning? Dave? I'm doing great. In New York City to celebrate Rob Freeman's retirement. Rob has been president of Kane Brothers, believe it or not, the investment bank for almost 20 years. He's a great friend of mine, and Kane Brothers has been and will continue to be a fantastic thought leadership partner for, with Foresight Health. It's actually going to be really fascinating, don't you think, Julie, to see what Rob does next? Rob can do nothing but good in his next chapter, so I'm really excited for him. Yeah, very cool. Thank you. Uh, Julie, how are you doing? Well, I think as everybody knows, since I moved to Seattle, I am obsessed with the weather. And we are now in full sun mode. It's going to be 77 on Saturday. And I know for the rest of you around the country, that doesn't seem like a big deal, but it's very exciting here. Congratulations. Lawn furniture coming out? Maybe. We'll see. It's probably going to be raining on Sunday, but we'll see. (laughs) Good luck. Now, uh, before we talk about private equity activity and policy, let's talk about Fox News. Dave, do you know anyone who watches Fox? And if so, is that reflected in their politics? I guess we're all tuckered out, huh? (laughs) Sorry about that. Not yet. Not yet. (laughs) Sorry about that. My dad used to have Fox News on all the time. And as he got older, the volume got louder, which was really annoying. But I remember visiting him during the second Iraq war invasion. He, along with the Fox broadcasters, were so excited as the troops rolled deep into Iraq on the first day of the war. And I asked him whether it was really all that surprising that the U.S. was able to beat Iraq in a war. And he kind of dismissed me. And I said, isn't the real question what we're going to do once we have control of the country? And he said uh, he assured me, actually, that the Bush administration, W. Bush administration had that totally under control. And you know how that one turned out. Uh, But my dad definitely got more conservative as he got older. And honestly, I think Fox News and that entire conservative media ecosystem probably had something to do with it. After a while, we just stopped discussing politics, which is actually kind of sad. Yeah, yeah, that's too bad. Thanks, Dave. Julie, is it safe to criticize Fox News with anyone you know? You know, given where I live, it's safe with just about everybody I know, except for one person who is, I think, prematurely becoming your father, Dave. (laughs) But, uh, you know, if you fly to the eastern part of the state or frankly drive like 15 minutes east of me, it gets pretty red pretty quickly. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Be careful where you stop for gas. Thanks, Julie. I know people who watch Fox News exclusively and clearly 
have been brainwashed into the cult. I know people who watch it in part to get both sides of the story, so they say. I do turn it on occasionally to get caught up on the latest MAGA talking points and the latest brainwashing techniques being used to try to turn us into fascists. So you got to stay on top of these things if you're going to do your part to fight it. Okay, let's get on top of this private equity thing. A new report out from Bain & Company says PE acquisitions in healthcare globally totaled 350 deals in 2022 with a combined dollar value of $89 billion. That's down from 515 deals in 2021 that had a combined dollar value of $151 billion. PE exits in healthcare followed a similar trend, exits down from 244 to 233, and exit value down from $179.4 billion to $78.4 billion. Investing is not my forte, but it is yours, Julie. Uh, What's your take on these numbers? What do they say about the rest of the year? And if I'm a healthcare consumer, why should I care? Well, as the co-lead of Bain's healthcare private equity practice said, healthcare private equity has earned a recession-proof reputation, typically outperforming overall PE activity during economic downturns, end quote. We all know that healthcare is, you know, relatively recession-proof. But, you know, despite its resiliency, we also know the high interest rates and these crazy labor costs that healthcare has really been dealing with along with the tight credit markets are making investment as a port and as a, an important part of our innovation economy a lot more challenging. So a uh, lot of slowdown being seen here. And frankly, I think probably much needed focus on true value creation versus just company launching and you know development. So economies go in cycles, right? Uh, but we, you know, we all know what healthcare is based on with our aging population and chronic disease and the like. So investors are getting creative with approaches. The public markets are down. You're seeing or will see, I think, more taking companies private, carving businesses out of larger entities that are facing their own need to just streamline what they do and you know not wanting to to kill what what they've purchased. And it's easy for me to say this because we are one of these firms, but investors that have conviction in the space and a lot of depth to really be able to identify good solutions can really, I think, make it happen here. So shameless plug, of course, for all that is good in innovation. But I thought it was interesting to see that Bain highlighted four areas of kind of PE hotbed. One is biopharma and life science, still pretty hot. Six of the top 10 deals last year were biopharma, life science tools, and other services. And, you know, I was kind of surprised to see them say that value-based care expansion is still kind of on the table because every health system I talk to is really struggling to even focus on anything related to value. But, you know, at the end of the day, Bain's analysis suggests that fee-for-value arrangements will capture 15 to 20% market share from traditional fee-for-service by 2030. That percentage, of course, makes me a little depressed given the work that we've been doing on this for years, but it's meaningful when you really think about the the larger market. Third, Bain said that 2022 was a breakout year for generative AI. I think we all know this given our obsession with chat GPT. But when you look at where AI has been used in the back of the house, basically, 
to you know automate payer and provider back offices, supply chains, therapeutic discovery, things like that. AI is really now making its way into the front of the house and imaging and text generation with consumers and others. And last, they really focus on healthcare IT, which it sounds like massive buyout activity in healthcare IT, really focused on the provider IT space, but also biopharma and payer IT catching up. Biopharma is increasingly looking at, you know, workflow productivity and reducing clinical trial length, while payers are actually really focusing on getting their own administrative data functions in order. Thank the Lord. So, you know, those of us who are believers, like I think we're believers, believe now more than ever that healthcare's problems are worth fixing. So, you know, when you think about consumers, we're all consumers and healthcare touches all of us with, you know, all-time high costs and these skyrocketing service expectations we have thanks to all the other technology and everything else that we do. So entrepreneurs have made the world a better place. And we're finding a lot of founders in at least the stage in which we invest coming in to do the same thing in healthcare. And I hate to say it this way, but capitalism has optimized healthcare policy to get us into this mess. And I actually think capitalism will get us out of it by taking advantage of the gaps in service and efficiency that technology can now tackle. So well, you know, I'm looking at this from a much earlier lens than the big PE that Bain's report talks about. There's still a lot going on because there's such opportunity to make everyone's life better. You know, I filled a prescription or refilled a prescription using my portal with two clicks. And within minutes, it was at my pharmacy. You guys would be proud of me. I took a big step. Big Berta, step. Versus, I am proud of versus you. Versus holding for my doctor. Good job. <laughs> Doing more with less, thanks to technology. Thanks, Julie. Dave, any questions for Julie? Well, what's next, Dave? A beeper? What do you think? Stop, Um, stop. (laughs) Blackberry? One at a time. (laughs) Now, now, Julie, there at the end, you alluded to the fact that capitalism got us into this mess and capitalism can get us out of this mess. And and there is an amoral quality to um, to private equity. It, It chases the money. I'm just wondering if you could give us examples of parts of the industry where PE has been very helpful and others where maybe it's been less helpful. So PE firms have really been on the forefront of revenue cycle management. You know, we even saw some health systems like HCA with Paralon or Tenet with Conifer. And today with larger assets, those may not have been the perfect models, but larger assets, you know, PE is pushing them towards consolidation. And these RCM businesses have been involved in massive regulatory concern around aggressive billing collection practices, violating debt collection laws, suing low-income patients, as I think we recently talked about, offering, you know, potentially exploitive medical loans, like bad stuff, right? So that hasn't been so great. The other one of my favorites that I think is... (laughs) just an industry that really needs some moral assistance is the air and ground ambulance part of our industry. And they've been involved in like massive surprise medical billings. Like, you know, the average cost for an air ambulance, thirty-five dollars to $60,000. I mean, it's just crazy. And those get billed separately. So patients get surprised by that. So it's, you know, that's not good. But I'd like to highlight the good news. HBR actually did a study or looked at a bunch of studies that looked at PE on hospitals 
And their conclusion is that these PE-owned hospitals did not lead to worse clinical outcomes for Medicare patients. Everything was based on Medicare data. And for, you know, acute non-surgical illnesses like pneumonia and strokes, they performed well and performed well across, you know, a number of other quality measures. For things like elective surgical conditions, like hip or knee replacement, same types of results. And I will say, one exception, for heart attacks, patients were seen to even receive better care at PE-owned hospitals than at non-PE-owned hospitals. So it's pretty interesting when you look at the Medicare population. It's hard to know whether that holds for the under-65 population. But you know, I think we all know that PE can be good as it manages business and actually tries to you know, perform well for other incentives, although apparently not pay for value. <laughs> I'll I'll take the same or better for less any day of the week. That's great. Thanks, Julie. Now let's talk about this viewpoint in JAMA. It's written by two Boston-based physicians. They said, quote, private equity may fuel pre-existing profit incentives in healthcare delivery and render patient outcomes more susceptible to their influence, close quote. Directly addressing what you just talked about, Julie, they said federal regulation of PE in healthcare is limited or is toothless. Instead, they recommended that states take the lead on policymaking in this area. Specifically, they said states could decrease the reporting thresholds of deals, expand executive branch regulatory authority over deals, and increase transparency of ownership. Dave, if the trends Julie talked about are right, do we need more policy oversight of PE and healthcare? If so, are states the right place to do it? And again, if I'm a consumer, why should I care? You know, doctors should really stick to medicine. This is a solution in search of a problem. Let me kind of pick up where Julie was talking about in her response to my question. And it's a point I've made several times before. Private equity is like nuclear energy. It has beneficial and detrimental applications. This is particularly true in healthcare where private equity investment can amplify the impact of the industry's perverse economic incentives. Julie, just like you were just talking about, PE owners of ER practices, and they have some big names like KKR there, uh, lobbied hard to water down the surprise billing legislation that Congress passed in 2020. They succeeded. The arbitration process gets providers largely off the hook, provides a little protection for consumers, and has the economic impact of increasing costs. Not great legislation. On the other hand, PE has been instrumental in advancing home care models. Most believe this is a positive value-creating investment. And this, to me, is where the author's logic in the JAM article just goes completely off the track. They see private equity as a phenomenon unto itself, when in reality, it's just simply a financing mechanism. Sure, PE firms are heat-seeking missiles for profit. PE firms will invest in companies that create or deplete value-based care as long as they can make a profit doing so. We shouldn't be surprised if we discover a knife is sharp after we pick it up. It's what they're designed to do. On the other hand, PE is simply a form of financial engineering, no more, no less. I happen to think we should tax carried interest as ordinary income. Senator Kristen Sinema prevented that from happening. Capitalism runs on investment and efficient markets reward value creation. The problem with healthcare isn't private equity. The problem with healthcare is healthcare. 
raging PE funds making investments in the industry are only taking advantage of the perverse incentives, like I mentioned earlier. And the problem is that companies in healthcare operate within an artificial economic environment where supply drives demand. So what does this do? It enables smart, well-funded PE investment firms to exploit perverse financial incentives that are baked into the payment models. Does this make PE firms any more guilty than hospitals or specialists that do exactly the same thing? I don't think so. If healthcare can clean up its economic model so that it promotes value through level field competition, the perceived PE problem will disappear. They'll still be in the game. We want and need them to participate in the healthcare marketplace. However, their investments will generate greater value for consumers because the system and the payment models actually encourage that. So if you don't know already, Dave, the answer to your question is no, we don't need specific regulation of private equity investment in healthcare at either the state or the federal level. What we do need is regulation that promotes transparency, data sharing, and leveled field competition. Get that right, and healthcare will be just fine, and private equity will still earn its profits, but they'll do it the old-fashioned way. They'll do it by creating value. Got it, Dave. Great analysis. Thank you. Julie, any questions for Dave? So Dave, I'm wondering if you can riff on the importance of antitrust as something that's you know, relevant to this discussion. This industry is really creating some highly consumer-friendly healthcare services that make people happy and hopefully improve overall health also. So I struggle you know, with some of the tenor around antitrust sometimes, especially because I think Epic is our biggest antitrust issue, as I think everybody knows. So tell me a little bit about how you feel about that. First, Julie, uh, thanks for asking that question, because antitrust is really important, and it's important for the government to get it right. As you know, I tend to be very pro-market, meaning anything that promotes level field competition which often puts me at odds with pro-business regulation and so on. Now, in sub-markets of the healthcare industry, regional markets, there are enormous numbers of companies that have monopoly or monopsony pricing power. And that's a bad thing. I sometimes joke that nonprofit hospitals are the only organizations in the history of the world that have monopoly pricing power and still lose money. But the fact that they have monopoly pricing power artificially increases prices. So first of all, the government does need to do what it can to ferret out areas where the marketplace isn't functioning and address monopoly and monopsony pricing, get rid of it. Where you, I think you were going with your question, though, is a little more interesting. It's when a company like Amazon creates value for consumers despite having potentially the power to exercise monopoly pricing. That's right. And we haven't completely figured out what to do with that yet. And that's way beyond healthcare. I really welcome with open arms, the big retail chains into healthcare, because I think they're going to fundamentally change supply dynamics in a positive way. Half of what happens in hospitals is for conditions that are either preventable or have waste associated with their treatment. So the extent to which these big retail companies, CVS, Amazon, Optum, Walmart, Walgreens can sort of get that right so that demand is really a function and drive supply rather than the other way around. I, I think that will be a good thing. But I, as a country, I think we're wrestling what to do with the Amazon 
phenomenon. I think it's going to help in healthcare, partly because they haven't been terribly prevalent, but it does raise this larger conundrum. What do we do when they stop lowering prices and making creating value for consumers and start using their market power just to get wealthier? Will it be too late? Thanks, Dave. As far as the PE policy and regulation, you know, they say sunshine is the best disinfectant. So I think the more PE ownership in healthcare, the more we need transparency to let consumers know who owns who. So uh, we'll see how that plays out. Yeah. Uh, now let's briefly talk about other big healthcare news this week. Julie, what else happened this week that we should care about? Well, I have two things. One is a bit of gossip and the other is the big news of the day. So the first is, this is something I heard at HES last week from two sources. So I don't know if it's actually published somewhere and I just haven't seen it, looked for it, or if this is just kind of hearsay. But how much of our healthcare spend is flowing through Epic today? How much of the nearly $4 trillion is flowing through Epic? Yes. I do not know. I was shocked when I heard $1 trillion, just because it's a big number. So $1 trillion of the $4 trillion flows through Epic? Wow. Through one system. Like, doesn't that seem a little bit risky? <laughs> I don't know. You know me. I don't like it. To, to put all our eggs in one basket like that? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's what we're talking about with Amazon. Right. So my number two is Kaiser buying Geisinger through what they're calling Ryzent Health, apparently. And I haven't seen a you know a ton of analysis of exactly what's happening here, but you know, I it just seems to me like they're really foreshadowing that this Ryzent Health is going to be purchasing a bunch of additional hospitals or health systems. Jaywan Ru, CEO of Geisinger, is gonna run it. And they're going to do it the KP way, you know, I think sharing a lot of how KP does what it does. So I'm really surprised that Geisinger did this in some ways. But in other ways, it feels like the historical challenges KP has had growing have been significant over, I mean, decades. And this is an interesting way for them to diversify their business model and, you know, take a system that is already very fee-for-value oriented and continue to spread the good word on the East Coast. Go the provider route instead of the payer route. Thanks, Julie. Uh, Dave, what other healthcare news is worth mentioning? So I don't know whether to laugh or cry at the news I'm about to share. The Wall Street Journal ran a feature article last week on how PepsiCo, under the leadership of its CEO, Ramon La Guerta, has shifted from manufacturing and distributing more healthy foods to making its unhealthy foods a little less unhealthy. So less sugar in Pepsi and less salt in Lay's potato chips. The theory is people are going to eat it anyway. May as well make it a little bit healthier for them or a little less unhealthy. I think it's probably the right way to say it. I just don't think this is going to turn out well. <laughs> less nicotine, more flavor, less nicotine. Exactly. We'll see what happens there. Thanks, Dave. And thanks, Julie. That is all the time we have for today. If you'd like to learn more about the topics we discussed on today's show, please visit our website at foresighthealth.com. And don't forget to tell a friend about the Foresight Health Roundup podcast. Subscribe now and don't miss another segment of the best 20 minutes in healthcare. Thanks for listening. I'm Dave Berta for Foresight Health.